So um, we are going to meet on Tuesday evenings from 6.30 to 8.30. If you've never been to a 242 church class, we generally do about an hour or so of teaching and then we take a break and then uh, we finish up the remaining 45 minutes or so. Uh, tonight we're going to, I'm going to teach you the first a little bit better than half and then I have a video to show you based upon a trip I made to Israel. Some of you, if you've been in our church for five years or longer, you might have seen it, but if you're newer than that, you will not have seen it. So I think you'll enjoy it nevertheless. And uh, just to get us going then, uh, the description that I've come up with for this course is as follows. We're, we're going to study the geography, the culture, the people. You could actually add an S there if you'd like. The peoples and the history of Israel from Canaanite times till the present. And our hope is to grow in our understanding of biblical history and the way the promised land shapes politics and the security of the land of Israel from roughly 4,000 years back till today. Now, I'm going to um, attempt to convince you that this is an important course, but it's probably a moot point because you're here. Nevertheless, uh, if you're talking with others, I want to share with you a number of reasons why this kind of a topic, I think, is very important uh, to our faith as Christians. And uh, we'll, we'll touch on those just, just in a few moments. But before we get there, I, I, what I've done is I've provided you with a little bit of an outline of expectations. So these are some of the major headings that I'm going to be teaching from. So we're going tonight we're going to look at some of the geographical uh, geography of Israel at four different time periods. We're going to look at border disputes. We're going to look at the topography of the land. Now, most people don't care about the topography of the land, but I'm going to show you a slide tonight that I think makes it quite evident that the, the topography of Israel actually has a significant influence upon the people, the culture, and even the biblical story. So we'll look at that. We'll talk a little bit about the climate, uh, some of the trade routes and the features in, in and around the land of Israel. So we'll get into a little bit of a... Tonight, I want to sort of do a, an overview of what Israel is like. And then we're going to go back in time, starting about 4,000 years ago, and work our way forward night by night and look at the following periods. We'll, we're going to look at pre-Israelite society. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but there were people living in the Promised Land before the Jews showed up. What was it like? How long were they there? How did they influence the land? How did they influence the conquest? We'll talk about that. Early Israelite society, we'll talk about the conquest, some of the enemy nations and judges. And by the way, this isn't just going to be a course flipping through the Bible. I'm going to take you outside of the Bible and look at some history and archaeology and other aspects that we can uh, benefit from outside of biblical studies. Then we will look at monarchical Israel, uh, the period of time when uh, Israel was united under uh, the kings. We will then look at uh, exilic Israel, uh, which resulted largely because of its political instability due to its division in half, and also because of God's judgment upon them for their rebellion. So what was life like in Israel when most of the Jews were absent? What was life like for the Jewish people when they were in Assyria and in uh, Babylon? And then we will look at post-exilic Israel, 
which many Christians don't know a lot about, but the intertestamental period from the time of the the prophet Malachi to Jesus is about 400 years. What was taking place during that time? We'll talk about the Maccabean revolts, the, the rise of the Second Temple and so forth. Then we will look at the New Testament era, which is probably the area that most of you are the most familiar with. We will then do sort of a, a, a panoramic view of uh, Israel from the time of the destruction of the Second Temple uh, to the, uh, the, the reintroduction of large groups of Jews from 1880 onward. And then modern Israel, we'll talk a little bit about life from roughly 1880 up to 1948, with the founding of the state of Israel and then what life has been like in Israel since then. So there's a lot of fascinating topics we can obviously cover. So we're going to start with uh, lecture number one, which relates to geography and borders and topography and all that kind of good stuff. But as I mentioned, why this course? Well, a few things I'd like to propose. Why would we want to study this stuff? Why is it important? First, because our reading of the Bible... Believe it or not, whether you've thought about this or not, your reading of the Bible assumes that you have a knowledge of the land and its people. You read about Moabites, you're supposed to know who they are. You read about the Ammonites, you're supposed to know who they are. When it says they went down from Jerusalem, you're supposed to know why they're going down. When uh, it talks about the Samaritans, you're, it's assumed that you know who these people are. When it talks about Galilee, it's assumed that you know what Galilee is. And the reality is that most of us don't know what those regions or peoples or geographical aspects are. And we lose out on the visual imagery and we lose out on some of the lessons that the text is trying to teach us. So it, it improves our reading of scripture. Secondly, the land historically, and depending on your eschatology, may still be promised to the Jews. For those of you that were in the Revelation class last semester, it's my view that it is, has been promised to the, the Jewish people. And the fact that Jewish people have returned en masse, they're now up to uh, 8.253 million people living in Israel, uh, up from perhaps just a couple hundred thousand in 1880, shows that something significant has happened in the last 100 plus years. And that may be part of God's redemptive timeline. So we'll discuss that more. Third, it's the birthplace of Jesus and Christianity. So we're Christians. It's part of our identity in some way, shape, or form. We'll talk about that. Uh, the fourth reason is, is that it's in the news a lot. Israel is not the only country on earth or the only region on uh, in on the globe where there are wars and fights and ethnic disputes and religious disputes. But Israel gets a lot of attention. Why? It's also a unique country. It is the only Jewish country in the world. There are many countries that officially declare themselves to be Christian or Islamic or Buddhist or Hindu. There's only one country in the, on the entire planet that is a Jewish state by choice and by definition. Now, Jewish doesn't necessarily mean religious Jewish. It's talking about the ethnicity. Most Jews are not religious. Most Jews are secular. 
but it is a Jewish state in terms of its ethnicity, and that makes it unique. It is a place where there have been debates about the Palestinian question, uh, the Jewish question, the place that Christians do or do not have there. There's obviously a lot of um, war and tension and fighting, and uh, therefore it winds up in the news a lot, so we want to try to understand why. And it also just makes for, even if you aren't a Christian, it makes for an interesting study in human history because the Mesopotamian area of our world is where civilization began. And people, peoples like the Jews have had a profound impact upon Western civilization as well as other forms of civilization. So those are some reasons why I think it's important to study a course like this. What we're going to do, as I've mentioned, is we're going to start off with an overview. So I'm actually going to give you a little bit of um, uh, an overview of what Israel is like in the present, but it's just going to be a snapshot, real broad. We're going to keep it real general. And then we'll get more specific once we get to our final lecture on modern Israel. But a few things about Israel. Israel was founded in uh, 1948. It used to be part of what was called the British Mandate. It was not, contrary to what some people think, the country of Palestine. It was not a country. There was no such thing as a Palestinian. There were people who happened to be Arabs, and there were people who happened to be Jews living in a territory which was controlled since 1917 by the British. And the way it worked is, uh, as you know, Israel is surrounded by Arab nations. And most of these Arab nations are ethnically related. There are some ethnic minorities among the Arab peoples, and there are some non-Arabs, like the Kurds, living among Arab people. But all these Arab tribes, over the course of history, formed different countries. And we know them today by names like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and the Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt, etc. The Egyptians of the Bible were not Arabs. The Egyptians of today are Arabs. So we have all of these Arab tribes. But to be honest with you, none of them really wanted this out-of-the-way, sort of defunct, area of the globe called the Palestinian province or Palestinia or Philistine is what it was often known leading up to uh, the founding of Israel. So Arab peoples lived there, but they weren't a people. They were Arab tribes. They did not have a national government. Uh, they didn't have official boundaries. There was no prime minister. There was no president. There was no king. They were just a bunch of tribes living in this territory uh, that we now know as Israel. And Jewish people started to move in, specifically from 1880 onwards, with the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. The African Jews did not arrive until much later. The European Jews started move, moving in, but there weren't a lot of them. Most of them were Orthodox or religious Jews that moved there for spiritual reasons. Now, at that point in history, the land of Israel had sort of gone 
wild, so to speak. A lot of swamp land. Most of the trees had been cut down. Areas in biblical times were covered with forests and vegetation had turned into desert. It just wasn't being cared for because nobody was in charge. So there were Jewish peoples living there and there were Arab peoples. And believe it or not, they got along. Some of them even intermarried. So 1880, Arabs, Jews are getting along. 1890, Arabs, Jews are getting along. And it really wasn't until post-World War I that some of the disputes started. Because that's when some of the Jews that were living there, because of the persecution they were experiencing, started to lobby and lobby and lobby and lobby the British to give them a homeland. And the British dragged their feet. They wanted to maintain control of the area because it gave them quick access to uh, the Suez Canal. It kind of gave them a key trading route. They had a colonial mindset at the time. They were considered the most powerful nation on earth because they had the most colonies. So they had this area that wasn't all that significant to them. They weren't growing a lot in it. They weren't mining stuff out of it. It was just kind of there. A bunch of ragtag groups of people were living there. And the short story is, is that through a series of events, which we will unpack later in the course in more detail, the Jews successfully lobbied the British government to partition the land of Israel into two two sections, two zones. So they partitioned the land of Israel. A part of it was, part of it was uh, to be designated as land for the Arab peoples, not the Palestinians, for the Arab peoples. Again, there, were no, there was no such thing as a Palestinian at the time. And the rest of the land was supposed to be given to the Jews. Now, obviously, there was opportunity if everybody got along for Jews to live in Arab areas and for Arabs to live in Jewish areas. But as soon as Britain agreed to allow the Jews to form a state, everything sort of blew up and continues to blow up even up to today, where there's been debates and squabbles. And now... These two people groups that intermarried and cohabited and farmed together and were good neighbors are arch enemies. And the Arab tribes have taken on an identity known as the Palestinians. So now there are Palestinians, whereas when it all came about, there were just Arab tribes. Now they are sort of a people group. They still officially don't have a country. There is no such country as Palestine. But they live largely in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, and then they're intermingled throughout Israel. Some Arabs are now Arab Israelis and occupy uh, cities like uh, Nazareth. So 1948 is a key date to put in your calendar. I always remember that date because my parents are both born in 1948. May of 1948, the state of Israel, uh, as we now know it, came to be. Now, the word Palestine is sometimes used. This is uh, a word that originally referred to the Roman province. They called it Palestina. Why did they call it Palestina? It derived from the word for Philistines. Philistines lived in the area now known as the Gaza Strip. It was also sometimes spelled Philistine with an F. But that's where the, the idea of Palestine came from, or the word Palestine came from. And that's why uh, even today sometimes the people group that we now know as the Palestinians uh, refuse to call it Israel. They want to call it Palestine because they want 
obviously recognition with the land. Very rarely will you hear an Israeli call a Palestinian a Palestinian. They will call them Arabs because they do not want to acknowledge a country known as Palestine or a distinct people group known as uh, Palestinians. Previously, the land has also gone by the names Canaan, which was the land that, which was the name that it had when uh, Abraham came in about 2000 BC, and it's also sometimes sometimes been called uh, Judea and Samaria, which in biblical times were more or less regions, but increasingly became provinces under Roman rule. So the the area known as Judea was sort of what we now know as central Israel, and Samaria tended to be a, just a tad bit more uh, to the north. So those are some different words that are often used to refer to the same area, Palestine, Israel, uh, Canaan, Judea, and Samaria. Uh, Israel is, and I'll show you some maps uh, shortly, but Israel is part of Asia. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but Israelis are actually Asians. They're not Europeans. They're not Africans. They're Asians. And as part of Asia, Israel is bordered by three bodies of water. So uh, if you're in Israel and you look to the west, what body of water would you be looking at? Okay, the Mediterranean, assuming you had good eyes or were really close. You'd be looking at the Mediterranean. If you look to the south, you're either looking at the Red Sea, which kind of comes up as one little arm, or you're looking at the Gulf of uh, Aqaba. And so those are bodies of water that uh, touch up against Israel. And there are five other countries or territories, depending on your political, modern political views, that abut Israel. So to the north, we have what country? That's to the northeast, but directly to the north. Okay, Lebanon. So Lebanon is directly to the north. Very small country. I mean, Israel's small, but Lebanon's really small. And then to the northeast, we have Syria. Okay, so Syria is just, just to the, if you're looking at it this way, to the right of uh, Israel. And then who are their neighbors to the east? Jordan. And then we have the Palestinian territories. Again, this will make more sense when we look at a map in a few moments, but we have the Palestinian uh, territories. There are two of them. One is known as the West Bank, and it basically roughly runs from the Jordan River down into the Nijev and it is to the east of Israel, but it is still fully controlled by the Israelis to the degree that they want to control it. Depending on who's the prime minister, there's sometimes greater freedom given to the Palestinians and sometimes less. And then we have the Gaza Strip, and then right below them we have what nation? Coming into the Sinai Desert. So we have Egypt. Okay. Now Egypt is currently the only nation that is officially not hostile toward uh, Israel. Jordan generally doesn't weigh in too much, although they often allow Palestinian terrorist groups to occupy their territory. But uh, definitely definitely Syria and the inhabitants of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are 
not getting along really well with the current Israeli population. Does anybody know what the capital city of Israel is? Okay, actually, Tel Aviv is not the capital, although that's where pretty much all foreign embassies are, because nobody wants to be in the capital. <laughs> no foreign governments want to be in the capital. I'll give you a hint. Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the largest city, and it is the capital city of uh, Israel, but Tel Aviv on the coast is the financial hub. It's where most of the embassies are, and a lot of the, like the Ministry of Defense and that is in Tel Aviv, whereas the Knesset and that is in, uh, is in Jerusalem. In terms of uh, its government, Israel functions as a democracy under a parliamentary system, very similar to our own. Now, they do have a president and a prime minister. So there's some slight differences there. The prime minister is usually the guy that's the face of, of the state. And as I mentioned earlier, we, uh, Israel is not just anecdotally, but is literally a Jewish state by constitution. So it's constituted as a Jewish state. Okay. Now, uh, this is the fundamental reason why Israel has not yet annexed the West Bank. Because not only are the peoples of Israel and the peoples of the West Bank hostile to each other, but the Arab birth rate is higher. And as a democracy, if Israel annexes the West Bank, what will happen? There will eventually be more non-Jews voting in the nation of Israel than Jews. And they could easily vote that it no longer be a Jewish state. At the same time, Israel doesn't want to cede the West Bank to the Palestinians because if it's an entirely separate state, it runs its own affairs, it might have United Nations representation, and there's not a whole lot they can do to control it. Whereas right now, the Israeli army can go in without warrants, walk into your house, arrest people, do whatever they want. Thirdly, if they don't annex the West Bank, but they allow it to become its own republic or state, then they, there's no buffer zone between Jerusalem and the Jordan, the country of Jordan, or any other hostile uh, state. So it's a catch-22 situation. They don't care so much about the Gaza Strip because it's kind of down on its own. But the West Bank is a big deal. And in addition to that, it would also completely cut them off from one of their, potentially cut them off from one of their fresh water supplies, which is the Jordan River and, the, and not the Sea of Galilee, but it could kind of cause a little bit of problem there. And it would also create a situation where at the north of Israel, there would only be a strip of land, maybe 20, 25 kilometers wide, which if it was ever blocked by an enemy nation would cut the northern half of the country off from the south. So there's lots and lots of reasons why Israel refuses to annex the West Bank and call it Israel, but refuses to give it away to the Palestinians as well. So it's, it's this real hodgepodge, messy situation. Again, we'll unpack that a little bit more later in our course. 
some vital statistics. Uh, this is taken from a document titled Vital Statistics, the latest population stats for Israel, and it was updated September 2014. So this is pretty, pretty modern information. So in Israel, the state of Israel, not including the territories, Palestinian territories, there is a population of uh, almost 8.3 million people. Now that's really not a very big country in terms of population, but it's a fair number of people considering the size of Israel, which is about the size of the state of New Jersey. They do enjoy a high standard of living and um, are continuing to grow uh, in all populations. So here are some statistics drawn from this document under the heading of diversity and growth. The Jewish population of Israel makes up 75% of the people. So out of that 8 point, almost 3 million, almost 6.2 are ethnically Jewish. Now when I say ethnically Jewish, we're talking like Jews from Poland, we're talking Jews from uh, other parts of Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Jews from Ethiopia. So there are black Jews, there are white Jews, and pretty much every color in between Jews. There are Jews that look just like someone that would come from India or Pakistan. There are Jews that look exactly like someone from the Sudan. Because they were out of the land of Israel for many of these groups for well over a thousand years, some for probably closer to 2,500 years, there was intermarriage and all sorts of factors that took place that created a very diverse-looking people group. So if you say, what does a Jew look like? Well, like us. A lot of different colors, a lot of different diversity. Now, the other 20% of Jewish citizens are Arabs. So these are Israeli Arabs. These are not Palestinian Arabs. Now, they're all related, but there are actually Jews, that, or there are actually Arabs that chose to stay within the borders of Israel from 1948 onwards, and they have Israeli citizenship. If they are Arabs and are Muslims, they do not have to serve in the army. There also are uh, some other groups. There are very small groups of Christian Israeli Arabs. How's that for a, a, a demographic? Christian Israeli Arabs. Kind of the best of all worlds, right? And then there are uh, the remaining percentage of the population, about four, four and a half percent, are just considered others. So this would be non-Arab Christians, so maybe European Christians that are living there for whatever reason, uh, members of the Baha'i faith, uh, etc. Now, when the state was established, there were only 806,000 people. So you do the math. 806,000, now you're pushing 8.3. So the population is increasing dramatically. It reached its first and second million people in 1949 and uh, 1958. And largely, this is through a series of uh, immigrations known as alias. So what these are is these are like mass immigration waves largely from Europe down. 
into the land of uh, Israel. The overall population grew by approximately 174,000 people from 2013 to 2014. So it's, it's, it's a fast-growing country. The Jewish population grew by 1.7% in the last year. The Arab population within Israel, 2.2%. So even the Israeli Arabs are having more kids than the Jewish uh, Israelis. And the Palestinians are having even more yet. And in large part, that is probably due to the fact that most of the Arabs identify with Islam, which still believes in the value of having children. Most of the Jews are secularists and are concerned with other things. Education. Uh, Jewish women don't have children almost on average till they're 28 years old, which is actually on the higher end, statistically. Israel's population, according to a 2014 report conducted by the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies, states that Israel has the highest birth rate in the developed world. Now you say, well, 1.7 is not a lot, but it's still high. And the reason for this is almost entirely attributable to the growing Orthodox population. It's the Orthodox Jews that are having large families. And they're sort of bringing up the overall numbers, even though many Jews are not having large families. The Orthodox Jews, who are as convinced about their faith as most Muslims are currently, are having larger numbers of children. And at the same time, uh, because of immigration, oftentimes when people immigrate to a new country, it takes their family a, a, a generation or two to catch up economically. And because of the Arabs in the country, who officially can't be discriminated against, but unofficially are, we're talking Arab-Israelis, still about 20% of the people live at or below the poverty line. And out of... Uh, 14.2 million Jews, best numbers, 14.2 million Jews that live in the world, 43% of them live in Israel. So more Jews live outside of Israel than live in Israel. The largest center is the United States. That won't surprise you. But there's still a large diaspora, which means a scattering around the world of Jewish peoples. But pretty much all of them look to Israel as their spiritual and hereditary home. So a lot of them are continuing to move back there. So of these Jews, which compose 75% of the population, most are secular or non-practicing Jews. They may acknowledge Jewish holidays just like most people in our country acknowledge Christmas. But there's really no meaning to it. There's no significance to it. And then a smaller but growing number are part of one of the various branches of Judaism. We'll get into that a little bit as well. There's the ultra-Orthodox, the Orthodox, there's the conservatives, there's the reformed, there's the secularists, and so forth. And there's lots of different denominations within uh, Judaism. Uh, Israel is also one of the uh, most, has one of the world's most highly developed militaries. In fact, for its size, it is for its size and people, it is hugely more powerful than the United States in terms of its military power and development. They can get all of their 
troops to the front line for a full-fledged battle in 24 hours. That's virtually unheard of around the world, if not unheard of. Highly developed military. Uh, they have industries in their country that you know, develop their own weaponry, much of their own weapon, weaponry. They spend a lot of money on the military. Uh, men have to serve a mandatory three years. There are some exemptions based upon health, mental status. You can opt out if you're, if you're a conscientious objector due to, uh, due to your religious affiliation or if you're um, an Arab Israeli. These kinds of things will allow you to opt out. But uh, you have to serve, I think it is three years if you're a man, and then you have to stay in the reserves till you're about 45 years old, which means you have to serve one month a year out of 12. So that's a significant commitment. And then females serve two years uh, in the military. And uh, um, Israel is actually one of the most progressive countries in the world when it comes to females in the military. They actually have more female officers in the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, than males. I think there's something like 51 or 53% female officers and whatever it is, 48, 47% male. Uh, and the women of their country are uh, also allowed to uh, function in full combat roles. So they're tough girls. So they have women of full com combat, the equivalent of like Green Berets, elite units. There's women doing that kind of stuff. So it's, you can understand if you do that for a few generations and if the majority of the country, like let's say everybody here minus maybe three people has served in the military, that would create a different culture and different mindset among us than if it's rare to see a Canadian soldier on the street. So a highly uh, militarized country, very much aware of the constant threat of death, which looms all around them. And so they, they take things very, very seriously. Now let's get into some, um, some slides here tonight. So uh, what I'll do is I'm just gonna pop ahead Okay, I'm going to pop ahead and then we're going to go back. But I want to show you this slide just for the sake of um, conversation. This is an old map. This is back in uh, the period of the divided kingdom, but just a few things. So this is the coastline. So you have Lebanon up in here. Can you guys all see that? The back? Now you wish you sat at the front, didn't you? <laughs> Told you. So uh, coming down here is the, the coastline. So this is the Mediterranean. And comes all the way down into this area. Now this area here, again, this is, don't look at these border lines because this is a, a different map I want to show you. But this area here is roughly where the Gaza Strip currently is. And in the north, what's this little thing here? You can give it three names. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's also called Kinneret or the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias is right about here. It's on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee. So sometimes in Israel, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. This is the primary source of drinking water, fresh water for all of Israel. And then what's this little line down here? This is the Jordan River. 
Now, it's actually hard to measure because it snakes back and forth, but from here downward, it's about 322 kilometers. Not in a straight line, but because it snakes back and forth a little bit. And how many of you have ever been to Israel, by the way? Just throw up a hand. Okay, when you went to Israel, weren't you expecting the Jordan River to kind of look like the Detroit River or something? Like, but there's parts of it that are narrower than from here to that window. And sometimes it almost dries up. So it's actually a pretty small river by, uh, you know, compared to other well-known rivers. I mean, we know the name of this river, but it's basically like a little stream. You could practically wade across it. And over here, then, is the modern kingdom of Jordan. And then what's this body of water here? Okay, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea at about 400 meters below sea level. So on the entire globe, this is the lowest place on Earth. And the Sea of Galilee is the lowest body of fresh water, even though it's significantly higher in its elevation than the Dead Sea. Uh, the Dead Sea has no outlet, so full of potassium, magnesium, obviously salt. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of look at the topography of this a little bit later on, but the highest mountain, so keep in mind, four, minus 400 meters, the highest mountain is at around 1,200 meters above sea level. So that's, that's a long way for a small country. Um, Jordan River flows not just out of the Sea of Galilee, but actually flows into it. It's kind of fed by the Banyas up in Dan, which is a river, and a couple of other rivers that feed into it. So the Jordan River doesn't just start here. It's also to the north. And it's a relatively hot country. Um, if you go online, and I, I looked at several sites, it says that the temperature of Israel as a whole, okay, it has three different major climate zones, but as a whole is anywhere between an average of 10 to 38 Celsius. But I was on the Dead Sea, and I looked up at the huge thermometer they have, and it was 43 Celsius. So 38 might be the average high, but it's not the highest high. So down in this area here along the Jordan River, and obviously down into the desert, can be extremely hot. It's basically a, a subtropical wet to subtropical arid climate. So you, you can grow lots of oranges and stuff like that there. Okay. Usually we don't think of Israel so much as uh, a touristy place, but it actually has great beaches and it's warm and it's sunny almost all the time. It rains in November. December, January, into February, but most of the year it's beautiful and sunny and warm and just really nice. So you can understand why modern people would like to live there. So let's then uh, look at some some geography. So we'll start back in the pre-Israelite era. So this is known in secular studies as uh, as far back as 8300 BC in secular studies. I mean. Um, you know, whether or not the world was created after that or not is obviously debatable. But I'm just using secular language here. So we have um, the Neolithic period, which is 8300 BC to the late Bronze Age in 1400 BC. Archaeologists and historians believe that Israel was more or less inhabited by various people groups. And so this land, notice it's kind of like 
fuzzy borders because they didn't draw out borders like we do today. There were a lot of Bedouins, a lot of nomads. People generally, you know, way back, didn't settle down and build cities. They they moved with the the uh, according to the needs of their flocks. You know, if there's green grass over there, that's where we're taking the goats. If there's green grass over there, that's where we're taking the goats. So they moved all over the place. So just generally speaking, this was known as the, as the land of Canaan. And there were feuds and battles and all that kind of stuff. But the majority of the population lived up in this area. So this area here, this is like the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which go down into the Persian Gulf. This is where we would have like modern day Iraq. And down here we have Syria and all of those modern countries. Well, those didn't exist at the time. This area of the world was known as Mesopotamia. Sometimes it's also called the Fertile Crescent. And probably the Garden of Eden was in and around this area. Now, we have a global flood that mixed things up, so I doubt that the Euphrates and the Tigris that are mentioned in Genesis pre-flooded in the exact same place that they are now after the world's been swished around with water. But chances are this is the area that the Bible understood that uh, mankind came from. And... There were, we'll talk about this in greater detail, but there were various feuds and, and sort of kingdoms of sorts that ruled this area of the world. But most of these people were nomads and Bedouin. And in the northern part of Mesopotamia is where our friend Abraham came from. Now, when Abraham, Abraham's father took him to Haran, and when he immigrated down into Canaan, this was not an unusual thing for a man to do. For a couple centuries before Abraham and a couple centuries after Abraham, there was mass movements of immigrants from the Fertile Crescent down into Canaan, through the Sinai and into Egypt even. Some of them settled in Canaan, some of them went down into Egypt, into the Nile uh, river basin here. But the point is, it wasn't like, Abraham, wow, this guy packs up his stuff and travels. There were probably tens of thousands of other people in the year he went also going down through this passage of land to immigrate. And so uh, this is the land of Canaan when, uh, in, a, in roughly the year 2000, when Abraham entered it, and roughly 600 years later, uh, under Joshua, they conquered the land and took it over for uh, the Jewish peoples. Now, from there, we have uh, the division of the land. This would have been roughly the division of the land under God's commandments uh, during and after the period we know as, we know as the conquest. So the conquest is the, the historical name for the time when they standing over here in the land of Moab. This is where they would have received the Torah, probably for the first time. This is the area. They were all standing in this area, Ammon and Moab, knees knocking together, being told to cross the Jordan and take the land. And they obviously were ultimately successful, but it took a long time. Some places, like up in Betchion, gave them a little more trouble. 
But they came in, and once they had taken over the land, this is how the land was divided. Now, when you look at that map, what's the drastic difference between that map and modern-day Israel? Look at, look at how much more land they had. This is all the Jordan today. So Israel starts from here over. And in fact, if you follow my little red dot, this area here is all West Bank. So it's much, much smaller today than it was when God offered them this land. And you'll notice like even how many tribes are living north of the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of interesting. You've got Simeon here and Judah kind of surrounds it. Why does Judah get so much? Does anybody know why Judah gets so much? Mostly because this whole area is kind of deserty. So this isn't, you know, you get more acres if you can't grow as many beans on it kind of thing. And this is like the choice land down in here. More rain in the north as you come down, it gets drier and drier and drier, so you just kind of naturally get more land. And then, of course, they factored into population. Manasseh was a very large tribe, so was Ephraim. These are the sons of Joseph, so they got lots of land. Here's Dan, but they eventually moved up north because Tel Dan is up in this area, just below Lebanon. Now, notice the nations around them. Aram. The Arameans were at one point, a very powerful Mesopotamian people group. And they probably were some of the first, quote-unquote, Canaanites that moved into Canaan. Then you have Ammon and Moab who, and Edom. Who are these guys? And what's their significance? You can just guess if you don't know. Okay, so descendants of Esau down here. So Edom. So Edomites, you know, they, they battle with the Jews, but really they're like uh, cousins. How about Moab and Ammon? Okay, she was a Moabitess. So where'd Moab and Ammon come from? Remember Lot and his two daughters, right? So that's one son, that's the other son. So again, Israel is, with the exception of these guys, surrounded by their cousins. But you know, 600 years later, nobody really cares your cousins. You just fight each other. right? But more or less, these peoples all here were, were related to one another. Okay, So this is the 12 tribes. So I give you two dates. Abraham comes in around 2000, just giving you rough dates here. And, the, and then the conquest takes place I think they probably left Egypt around 1446, but I'm just rounding it to 1400. So in and around here is when the tribes start to move in. And then I'll show you another map. You've already looked at this, but now we're going to look at it for a different uh, reason. This is the divided kingdom. So what's the story behind the divided kingdom? We have Israel comes in under Joshua. The priests function as the spiritual, social sort of government, if you will. Not government in the modern sense of the term, but government of the nation. Over the course of time, a series of judges take control. What's the reoccurring phrase in the book of Judges? 
and everybody did what was fit in his own eyes, so that system didn't work out very well. So then they lobby Samuel for a king. They get a king. It's kind of a knucklehead, doesn't do a great job. So he loses the kingship. And then the second major king is from the line of Judah, David. I think one of Saul's sons served very briefly in between there. So David was actually the third king. And from there forward, we have the kingship under uh, the descendants of David. Now, what's the, what's the upside and the downside to a hereditary monarchy? What's the plus? Everybody knows who's in charge when the old man dies. What's the downside? His dad might be great, the son might stink, but you're stuck with him anyway. So there's an upside and a downside to hereditary monarchies. It worked out okay from a political perspective until Solomon's son, Rehoboam, you go from the wisest king to the most foolish king, he listens to his youthful advisors. Basically, he goes to the youth group of the church instead of the elders for advice. And the junior highs tell him some bad advice. So a guy by the name of Jeroboam, who had been sent into exile, comes back from Egypt, and they split the nation in two. So see this line here? This kingdom is known as the kingdom of Judah. And this kingdom is known as the kingdom of Israel. They establish Samaria as sort of their spiritual capital. The southern kingdom takes Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't really an even split. This kingdom was composed of 10 of the 12 tribes. This kingdom was composed of only two. But they were, the one of them was pretty big. So we have the divided monarchy in seven, or sorry, 932. And that bumps along, bumps along okay for a couple of hundred years. And then um, what we now know as northern Iraq, which at the time was known as Assyria, southern Iraq was known as Babylon. Northern Iraq, modern northern Iraq, which is Assyria, is like the world superpower. They come in in the year 722, so divided kingdom, so a couple hundred years later, they come in and basically annex the kingdom of Israel for their own territory. And the way it worked back then, it was just a different mindset. It was all about assimilating people, but it wasn't like, let's just go in and kill everybody. We want to take these people and assimilate them into our kingdom. Kind of like what Rome did really well several hundred years later where Rome was a very diverse uh, uh, empire. So they take all these people up, and who then occupies the uh, kingdom of Israel from 722 onward? Who, who comes in to, to live there? Well, we have a few Jews that are left behind, but in keeping with the Syrian policy, they, they then take selections of people that they've captured in Mesopotamia and bring them down and settle them in that area. So there doesn't, you know, lions and tigers and bears and creepy things don't take over. So what happens? Well, um, these foreigners fall in love with the Jewish girls or the Jewish guys and they get married and they start to intermarry 
and we have this new people group coming up called the Samaritans. Half Jews, half Gentiles, all related people groups. And they take aspects of Judaism and aspects of their own religion and kind of mix it together. Right? There's only a few thousand Samaritans alive on planet Earth today, but they, they're, still, they're still around. And this is the people group that, you know, 700 years later, Jesus would meet at the well or he'd tell the parable about the Good Samaritan, these kinds of things. Now, this kingdom survives for how much longer? Well, they, they're able to more or less keep it together for 150 years or so. In 597, Babylon is now the superpower of the world, southern Iraq. So they come in and they conquer Judah, but they don't destroy Jerusalem until 586. So generally we date the second, the captivity of the southern kingdom to 586. And they then take the majority of the Jews to Babylon. And that's where Daniel and uh, Ezekiel and those guys sort of serve out their tenure as prophets of God. But you'll notice then that uh, even during this time, look at this. How, how is this map different from this map? I'll flip back and forth a couple times. Oh. See the difference? Because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, they'd already begun to lose land by the time the kingdom was divided. So now you have them sort of crammed into a smaller and smaller slice. This area is growing. The Philistines are growing and becoming an increasing threat. You've heard all these words in the Bible, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza. Samson liked to go around there and beat people up. Remember him? And then the kingdom of Edom. Well, it used to be down in here, right? Now it's, see it's creeping around. These are various tribes, kind of desert tribes, Niger tribes. Moab's moving in tight. Ammon's moving in tight. And the kingdom of Aram, Damascus, is coming down and moving in here. See, this is Damascus, really not that far from the uh, Sea of Galilee. Yeah, yeah. This area here is known as the Golan Heights. In 1967, the Assyrians thought they could beat up the Jews, so they came tearing in, and they got pushed all the way back to Syria. They got close enough that the um, Jews actually shelled Damascus. And they've never given them the Golan Heights back since. So that's still a big dispute. So moving forward then from the divided kingdom, well forward, we now have modern Israel. So this map's helpful as well. You guys still hear me? Yeah. The fuzziness just stopped. It's kind of nice. So this is modern Israel is the white. The white area is modern Israel. The green area is the West Bank. That's quite a bit of land compared to all of Israel. This is very narrow here. This is why they don't want to give up the West Bank because let's say an enemy comes in here through the West Bank and cuts them off. You know, you just line up a couple hundred tanks and you're, 
your people in the north are cut off from your people in the south. This is the Gaza Strip. Both these people are impoverished, but especially people in the West Bank. And this light green area is the Golan Heights. So that's the area I mentioned already that was captured by Israel in the 1967 war. And everybody thinks they should give it back to Syria, but they're like, no, we're not doing it because we want a buffer zone. So there's lots of military outposts in the Golan Heights. Uh, then, in case anybody ever accuses Israel of never giving back land, Israel actually took all of this under Ariel Sharon in the 60s from the the Egyptians when they tried to attack. The five nations tried to attack Israel. Israel pushed them all the way back and occupied this land. I think they gave it back. We'll, we'll talk about this further. I'll be more specific. But I think they gave it back in the 80s, something like that. So you... Now, this is just the Sinai, but it still makes for a nice buffer zone. Now, if you look at the white area, pretty much from, let's say, the word Israel down is not really inhabitable. It's desert. It's the Niger Desert. There's Beersheba in the north, and there's the Gulf of Elat in the bottom, and a really nice resort called Elat down here. But most of the population lives just in this little bit of land here. So this is an interesting chart too. This is a hundred. This represents a, if this chart represents a hundred percent of a land they actually have gained. They've returned ninety percent of it. They, the Gazans live in this sliver. The Golan Heights. Uh, the uh, the Gol, I don't know what you call them. The Golanis. I don't know. Uh, that's part of Israel, but it's sort of disputed. It's a little dangerous to live there. And then the West Bank is is here. So there's quite a bit of... Um, they've basically retained 10% of what they've taken out of 100% of what they've taken, minus the area that was given to them by the Partition Accords under the British Mandate in 1947 and 8. Okay. So any questions about those uh, top-down maps? I'm going to show you... A topographical map shortly. But any questions about that? Well, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. So, um, when we drove by car up a very steep hill and down a very steep, steep hill from here to here, it was about an hour and a half. Hour and a half to two hours at the most. When we drove from here to here, it was about two hours. And I think from about here to here is about a four-hour drive. So keep in mind, it's a different climate than here. But let, let me just guess. It'd probably be four, six, maybe seven, seven and a half. So how far could you drive in Ontario? And <laughs> Yeah. In Israel, you drive fast, but it's like this. I actually got a ticket when I got home in the mail. In the mail! I don't even know where I got it. There was no explanation. You just owe us 35 bucks. It must have been a camera. So, so pretty small. Yeah. Okay. 
So now for the topography of the land. So topography refers to, if you're looking at land sort of from the side, the, how it goes up and down and all that kind of good stuff. So the topography of Israel is also significant for several reasons. It's significant to its security, its routes of travel, and its interaction with neighboring nations. And Israel, for being such a small country, is extremely diverse, extremely diverse. You can be in an area, it's all green, forest, you know, so dense you can't even see through them. Uh, you can be in an area that's mountainous where you're up these scary-looking cliffs looking down. Uh, you can be on flat plains. You can be standing out in the desert. You know, you can be in the blazing heat. You can be in a little cooler climate. It's extremely diverse and composed of plains, mountains, wilderness, bodies of fresh water, bodies of salt water, and a coast bordering on the Mediterranean Sea. So this next picture here, um, it's a little bit fuzzy. These are just sort of taken from various sources online. It's a little bit fuzzy, but I'll just sort of orient you here. So now we're looking Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. So we're not really looking down here into the Nijev. This is the northern edge of the Nijev. Beersheba, or Beersheba, as it's sometimes called, the B and the V in Hebrew are kind of interchangeable depending whether it's ancient or modern Hebrew. So Beersheba or Beersheba is here. And that's sort of the north of the Nijev Desert. And then you'll notice just looking at it, this is all coast. So this area is known on the west as the coastal plains. So it's nice and flat. The majority of Israelis live here in various cities along the coastal plain. You have Tel Aviv, you have the port of Haifa, uh, Lots of, uh, not lots as in, you know, compared to Canada, but this would be where the farmland is, which is very little of Israel, very little of it's tillable. But this is where the farmland would be. And this would be the coolest part, most greenery. Uh, key populations along here, as I mentioned, are Tel Aviv. This is like the financial hub of the... Uh, country, and then Haifa. So you have Haifa, Tel Aviv, and where is it here? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the largest city by population. And then Tel Aviv and Haifa, I can't remember which one's first, second and third, but those are like the second two biggest uh, cities in Israel. Now, um, if you look at this map, all down here we have mountain range and that mountain range continues to go all the way down into the Sinai uh, wilderness. So this central area then is known as the hill area or the mountain region and it goes right down the middle of the country. So if you're going from west to east you got to go way uphill and way downhill. And as I mentioned to you earlier some of these mountains here get up to uh, you know thousand plus meters above sea level. So we're talking about quite quite a hike. You've got to drive stick shift. It'll tear the automatic transmission out of your vehicle. So the hill countries average average 600 meters in elevation. That's the average elevation for the hill country. So 600 meters, and then what did I say this was? Minus 400. So you have 600, let's say on average, down to 400. So you have a drop of 1,000 meters, 3,000 feet. And you can drive from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea in, in less than an hour. 
it's all downhill. I mean, there's no great gas mileage, but it wears your brakes out. So you, you have this central hill country, and um, the central hill country, and if you add up the, the square kilometers, that, that is the majority of Israel's land. And then this area is known as either the Jordan Valley, if you're in Israel, or the Jordan Rift Valley. Because the Rift Valley, many of you will know, goes all the way down into Africa. You may have heard of the famous like Rift Valley Christian Academy in Africa. This is this vein of, this, this dugout vein that goes all the way up into Israel. And down in this area, you'd have, uh, like right here at the top of the Dead Sea, that's where you'd find like Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, kept. Very arid, extremely hot along here. Down here would be, right around here would be Masada, where the famous... The Jews famously held out against the Romans who built the siege ramp to attack them when they got to the hill and everybody was dead except for like three people. Right in here, just at the top of the Dead Sea, is, is the famous city of Jericho. The oldest continuously inhabited city on earth is Jericho. Not the oldest city, the oldest continuously inhabited city on earth is in Jericho. And you'll notice here from the Jordan to the other side of the mountain, they got a little note here, that's 55 kilometers. And then 15 kilometers, so 55, 60, 65. So you're really only talking about 65 kilometers from one side to the other. And keep in mind, this whole area from Jerusalem over, this is all West Bank. So it's very small, okay? Sea of Galilee, so this region up here is Galilee. And then that gray and grayed area is the... Um, uh, the Golan Heights. Over on the other side, if you're standing in the Dead Sea, let's say anywhere along here, you're looking straight up at really tall mountains, and then the other side you're looking straight up at really tall mountains that are part of the Kingdom of Jordan. The Jordanian mountains, you mean? Oh, these ones? Oh, there's several different names. Like there's Mount Hermon and... Uh, no, just like topographically, this is like a, the central mountain range, but you'd have, I don't know, dozens of different names depending on what mountain you're on, all the way up through uh, to Galilee and beyond. Yeah. So this is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. You have Capernaum here. You have the land of the Gerasenes on the, on the uh, east side where Jesus um, cast out the demon from the demon-possessed man. But I did, I'm showing you this because you, you start to realize Abraham's down here at the foot of the Dead Sea. His, his nephew Lot gets taken captive and it says he went after them, captured him and brought him back. Oh yeah, okay, so he went all the way up through here, all the way up through these mountains, all the way through the Golan, all the way up to Damascus. He had to be gone for six months on foot. So the text just gives you... A, a phrase, but we're talking like, yeah, I'm just going to go chase a guy down and I'm going to uh, northern Quebec. I'll be back in, you know, a couple weeks. Yeah, on foot. Um, so you can just kind of look at this map, kind of familiarize with it, familiarize yourself with it, and it kind of gives you a little bit of a feel for the diversity. So really hot down in here, different climate zones, really hot, very arid. They're browned out for a reason. There's hardly any vegetation along here and then more fertile area along the, the shoreline.
Let's take uh, let's take a 10 minute break, and then um, want to talk to you a little bit about culture, and then I want to show you a video. Very quickly, I'm just going to take three or four minutes to overview the culture of the country. I mean, how do you overview a culture in three or four minutes? But I'm going to give you just some real quick things, and again, we will come back to some of this stuff later on, and then I want to show you a video. So overview of the culture. Very diverse religiously. You probably already know that. Uh, some famous cities are part of the culture uh, and, and continue to affect the culture, notably Jericho, notably uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Unfortunately, Bethlehem is in the occupied territories. It's in the West Bank, so it's dangerous to visit. But um, So it's not under Jewish control, but uh, certainly Jerusalem is for the most part. Uh, Jews descend from Abraham. And uh, I don't think we should have a big spiritual debate or problem with this, but uh, the Jews descend from Abraham and probably the household he brought with him. So Abraham didn't just trot off to the promised land with him and his wife. At different points, he's got like 318 fighting men at his disposal. He was probably a relatively wealthy guy. He could have been traveling with an entourage of 1,000, 1,200 people. He was the head of the household. Eleazar was obviously one of his choice servants. So the image of Abraham sort of coming down with three or four people, no. I mean, he was probably coming with a lot of guys, a lot of extended household. He was like the patriarch, the, the head of the household. But I'm sure that over the course of the generations, there were more people that integrated into the bloodline than just Hagar. You know, there, there were others that, that were part of that household that probably would have intermarried. So he came into Canaan during a period of mass immigration from Mesopotamia, as I've already mentioned. Um, modern Israel is, uh, as a result of the climate, not so much of a food-growing country. It's more of a technology country. It exports uh, very little of its food supply because it needs it for itself, with the exception of oranges, pl plenty of oranges and dates. Some of the products it does cultivate and limited supply include dates, wheat, corn, tropical fruits, tomatoes, cotton, melons, cucumbers, and obviously these products vary region to region because as we've looked at the topography, you're not going to be growing tomatoes in Qumran. Uh, it also is known for its vineyards. Israel produces world-class wine, uh, produces its own sheep and cow milk, uh, several species of fish, Mostly cichlid. If you go to like a, if you've ever, like when I was a kid, I used to love aquariums. I had all kinds of aquariums in the house. And the, the more disc looking fish, gouramis and those kinds of fish are known as cichlids. Most of the fish in Israel are cichlid, kind of tropical type fish. So the fish that Jesus would have fished would be kind of of the types you'd find in a tropical fish store today. They're not like bass and perch and the kind of stuff we have. So several species of fish. Yeah, quite a, quite a variety. Mostly different species of cichlids. Some of them have gone extinct due to the drying up of marshlands in the north. There's one species that hasn't been seen since 1990, but that was common back into antiquity in that in that lake. And uh, but the majority would be cichlid-based uh, fish. Um, and Many of the fish now are grown in fish farms outside of the Sea of Galilee, right? And very much uh, known for its flowers. It exports a lot of flowers. 
but it's one of the few countries in the world where it is illegal to pick a wildflower of any sort. You know, here you get in trouble for the trillium, right? But in Israel, you can't pick wildflowers at all. It is uh, technologically a very advanced country because it, it can't rely upon, I mean, it basically has no oil. It, it spends a lot of its uh, uh, money importing oil from mostly hostile nations. <laughs> so that's a tricky balance. It, it can't grow that much um, veg vegetables or fruits. I mean, it's limited in that regard. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of great land for uh, raising sheep and, and cattle. So Israel as a modern nation is known for its uh, chemical industry, produces a lot of chemicals quite a few out of the, sea, the Dead Sea, for instance, potassium, magnesium, salt. Um, very technologically advanced and uh, also, as I mentioned earlier, has an advanced military industry, weaponry, and, and also um, a lot of other smaller industries like irrigation. Because it's a drier country, there are uh, plenty of companies that would develop irrigation products for people that are trying to grow, um, you know, vegetation in areas where there's not a lot of water. Israel currently has a water shortage and it's largely due to the fact that it's pumping water out of the Sea of Galilee, out of the Jordan River, and the Jordan's also pumping it out. And for the last seven or eight years, they've had a bit of a, uh, what do you call it when it doesn't rain? Uh, a drought. They've had a bit of a drought. So the problem is if you take the Jordan River down too far, you start to get into more of the, the less drinkable water, the lower, the heavier water. So they, they don't actually broadcast that too much because it could kind of work against them militarily, but they actually are in a pinch when it comes to uh, uh, access to fresh water. So they are, they are actually known as one of the most water conservative countries in the world, and they do a lot of PR among their people. You know, when you're up north, they, they have that uh, statement, uh, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Well, that's like, you know, translate that into Hebrew or whatever, and that's, you know, <laughs> that's, what, that's what you do. So Navy showers, you know, you turn the water on, get wet, turn it off, lather yourself up, and then turn it back on. That's part of their, their public PR campaigns because they want people to conserve the fresh water supply. Okay. Uh, animal life, there's mountain gazelles, there's ibexes, which are the big, long, curly horned creatures. Conies are rock badgers, they basically look like groundhogs. Lizards, chameleons, wild donkeys, fennex, fox, really cute little fox with huge bat-like ears, just a few, just a few pounds. Um, they're reintroducing some extinct species like ostriches in the south, um, various kinds of snakes, kind of some scary looking ones, uh, sheep, goats, um, a dog that's indigenous to the Middle East and Israel in particular is known as the Canaan dog, kind of a medium sized uh, dog, kind of looks like a, a white or black and white German shepherd. And um, they're reintroducing camels, even though most uh, historians believe that camels weren't living in Canaan at the time of Abraham. They were brought in from the south later on and used for various purposes. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there. And uh, I have a video to show you. It runs 
30, I think it's 37 minutes. So we're actually going to go over time about four or five minutes. If you absolutely have to leave right at 8.30, that's fine. But otherwise, you'll be here till about 8.35. And this video is um, based upon pictures and a commentary that I put together uh, from a trip that I took to Israel in 2010. So it, I thought it would be kind of a fun thing to watch at the beginning of this class and give you a little bit of a of my uh, uh, it's my attempt to give to be your tour guide tonight as you travel through Israel okay. Israel the land of promise the land flowing with milk and honey the land that Yahweh God offered to Abram and his descendants the Israelites in Genesis 12:1, God came to Abraham and said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This promise was given to Abram by God, a God not exclusively worshipped by his father Terah. According to Joshua 24, Terah not only worshipped Yahweh but also pagan gods. And yet Yahweh demanded exclusive worship from Abraham and his people. He initiated a covenant with them that involved both unconditional promises like land and offspring, as well as conditional blessings like peace from war and food. If they obeyed him, they would reap great blessings. If they disobeyed, there would only be catastrophe. The cycles of obedience and blessing, disobedience and curses is woven through all the Hebrew Bible. God is always faithful. Humanity is often not. Rooted in history, taking place largely in the land that we call Israel, the story of God and his relationship with the Jews is a story for us all. We too serve a faithful God of promise who has chosen to bless us by his grace, who has called us to a new way of living distinct from our surroundings, who punishes us for disobedience and who is preparing a heavenly land for us to enjoy eternally. From June 14th to June 24th, 2010, my wife Susie and I journeyed to the land of Israel to both celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary and fulfill a lifelong dream that we have both had to tour the place around which so much of the biblical narrative revolves. We had an absolutely fabulous time. Here then is Aaron and Susie Rock's Excellent Adventure. Our tour started in Detroit, took us to Philadelphia, and on to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv and back, a trip of 19,000 kilometers. Upon arriving at the airport, we rented a car and drove an hour and a half to the upper part of the Dead Sea where we booked four nights in a kibbutz. Kibbutzim are communal villages, farm-like settlements that Jewish people live in, many of whom have returned in recent generations to resettle Israel. Our kibbutz, called Kalia, is a modern settlement complete with a dining hall and motel-style rooms. Its location along the Dead Sea makes it the lowest place on earth. We settled ourselves in after a long and tiring flight and prepared for our first day of touring. On Wednesday, June 16th, we traveled the one-kilometer journey down the road from our kibbutz to Qumran, this is the location where the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by a Bedouin boy in the late 1940s. Since then, hundreds of scrolls have been discovered, many of which are Old Testament texts. 
As you can see, this is a very dry and desert-like place. The temperatures reached 43 degrees Celsius while we were there, allowing for very little vegetation to grow. These dry conditions are perfect for the preservation of scrolls hidden by an ancient community of Jews who had fled there in the second century BC because of Roman persecution. The ruins you see include places of worship, a ritual bath for purification purposes, and homes. In such a dry place, the fact that they would use such a precious commodity as water for religious rituals demonstrates their devotion to God. While the cliff caves are not safe for tourists to enter, the settlement below, overlooking the Dead Sea, indeed was a place of rugged austerity. From Qumran, we traveled south along a winding road along the Dead Sea to En Gedi. The trip took less than an hour and reminded us how close everything is in Israel. En Gedi is what is known as a wadi, or an oasis of sorts in a cutout between two large mountainous rock faces where vegetation grows. The hyrex, also known as the coney or the rock badger, laying on the rock that you see in the photo is the same creature in Proverbs 30:26, where the writer states, the rock badgers are a people, not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. It was here, where the conies hang out, that David and his men hid from King Saul as he hunted them down. This place, known for all its beauty and the famous waterfall of David, was also the spot where Saul's dark mind plotted murder. In one of these caves, Saul entered a cave to relieve himself, to go to the washroom, not knowing that David and his men were hiding in the back of the cave. By sparing Saul's life, David enjoyed a period of peace with Saul, until once again, Saul's hatred led to a further murder plot. Just down and away from En Gedi, archaeologists have also uncovered an ancient synagogue complete with mosaic floors made from tiny colored stones, about one centimeter square. Our third destination along the Dead Sea that day was Masada. Masada was a famous mountaintop fortress where Herod later built a palace. It was used by a rebel Jewish community who also refused to serve Rome, much like the Qumran community. When the Roman army attacked, they spent months building a massive earth siege ramp up the mountain to enter and conquer the Jewish people. To their surprise, after months of work, when they entered the fortress, all but two women and five kids who had hid in a cistern had committed suicide, rather than suffer the humiliating defeat of the Romans. The fortress features the remains of homes, places of worship, the Herodian palace, and huge water systems amazingly used to collect water in this dry and arid land. Pigeons were also kept in small cutouts in the rock for food, for fertilizer, and for sacrificial purposes. The remainder of the day was spent briefly at Lot's wife's cave, traditionally called so due to its proximity to the historic Sodom and Gomorrah. Here along the salt-laden shore of the Dead Sea, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back at the cities that Yahweh God was about to destroy for their rebellion. In this area, we also enjoyed a late afternoon swim in the Dead Sea near Enbokek. The white sand beneath us is actually salt, and you really do float effortlessly on the salt-saturated water. 
it's probably the only body of water in the world where you'd have to try really, really hard to drown. Temp on the beach was 43 degrees Celsius that day, and the water felt like a hot tub. On Thursday, we traveled an hour to Jerusalem. After fighting through very treacherous traffic, Israel is, after all, a very difficult place to drive, we entered the old city through the Jaffa Gate, one of eight in the old city walls. The narrow streets are full of Arab vendors selling their wares. Now, since we were alone without a tour guide, it took a few minutes to orient ourselves, but eventually we, we arrived at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. While it may not look the part, this is the most likely place, in my opinion, for the crucifixion of Christ. Historically, it was outside the city walls and was a hill upon which early Christians met to remember Christ's death. In hatred, the Romans later flattened it, chopped the mountain down, filled in the valley around it, and built a pagan temple, which was later destroyed and replaced by a church. It was later destroyed as well, and the burial site of Christ was chopped down with pickaxes by Muslim invaders. Now within the city walls, the current church is visited by many Christians each year as a place of worship. The Western Wall is also a famous place and site for worship. Many Jewish people come there every day to worship Yahweh God. It is the last remaining wall that was part of the second Jewish temple. Over half of it is underground because Muslims have built homes up against the wall in past centuries. The underground sections can be toured by traveling through extensively excavated tunnels beneath the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock, a 1,300-year-old mosque, is built above the wall on the site of the Second Temple, although it's only a fraction of the temple's size. I toured this site alone because Susie was not dressed to suit the Muslim requirements for women's attire. Nearby, another mosque also welcomes Muslim worshippers. Various other sites in Jerusalem that we toured that day included different churches and shrines that reportedly dot the path walked during Jesus' journey to Calvary. This pathway is known as the Via Della Rosa. The Damascus Gate in the Muslim quarter led us out of the old city, down a hill, across the street, and up a small hill to the Garden Tomb, a more recent site suggested by General Gordon in 1883 as a possible candidate or Calvary. While historical evidence does not favor this site as being the true Calvary, for many reasons it looks the part due to its skull-shaped hill and a tomb that seems reminiscent of the gospel accounts. It is also a much more peaceful site than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and so offers the sojourner time for reflection. The Mount of Olives stands behind the old walls to the east and contains numerous graves as well as the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed with his followers. Various churches and monuments have been built there. One church is supposedly where Mary was buried. The Church of All Nations also stands in front of Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, that is the garden, ancient olive trees still stand preserved over the centuries by grafting techniques, and yet their root systems easily date to the time of Christ. Could it be that these very trees 
witnessed Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Just above Gethsemane in the Jewish cemetery, one can overlook the old city, including the Dome of the Rock. In the valley nearby are stone monuments traditionally ascribed to various figures. Amazingly, they too are carved out of solid stone by hand. One of the things that takes the edge off of some of the sites when you visit them is a lack of surety as to whether or not the particular place you're visiting has any legitimate historical significance. While many biblical sites are known definitively, many others are disputed. This cave that you see in the picture is located deep beneath a man's home. He suggested to me that it was the place where Mary was born, although no such historical record exists to suggest that Mary was born in Jerusalem. Back within the walls, archaeologists have uncovered acres of buried homes, shops, and places of worship that once surrounded the temple walls but remained buried for centuries. Mountains of stones lie there, where invaders originally pushed stones from the temple down into the space around it. In the old city of David, an excavated area just outside the old city walls, we toured a number of fascinating sites. One highlight was Hezekiah's Tunnel carved from each end out of solid stone 2,700 years ago to provide water to the city while they were attacked. This is an eerie and long tunnel, but very cool to look at, and also a testament to ancient technology. As you walk through the 533-meter tunnel, you cannot help but marvel at how long it must have taken to carve out. About 10 inches of water filled the tunnel, and so you walk through it in your bare feet, and the ceiling heights range anywhere from five and a half feet up to 10 feet high. At the end of the tunnel is the Pool of Shalom, where city dwellers could enjoy spring water while they were under attack. David's palace and royal quarters are also located in this general area. On Friday, Susie and I left Cali and toured some key sites in the Nijev Desert to the south. This was one of my favorite days due to my amazement at human engineering. To construct cities in the desert with only stone and to provide water sources for their inhabitants is no easy feat. At Tel Arad, we observe centuries of civilization dating back to 4000 BC. In Old Testament times, when cities were attacked and conquered, it was normal to tear down the existing town kill all the inhabitants and build over the top. While it is disturbing to think of innocent people being slaughtered, even God himself commissioned the Jews to do so to the godless Canaanites. By doing so, there was no chance for their children to grow up and reestablish centers of idolatry. In Arad, the Jews conquered the Canaanites. In Numbers 21.1, it mentions this town. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Nijev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Athrium, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction 
And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. Kings David and Solomon later built Aradah, and so the site is now a two-level area, composed in the upper part of Israelite Arad, and in the lower area of the excavated Canaanite Arad. Our next desert outpost was Beersheba. Layers of civilization can be found here. It was considered the southernmost part of Israel, where Dan occupied the place of the most northern city. It is mentioned often in the Bible in reference to land boundaries. For instance, in 1 Samuel 3.20, And all Israel from Dan, that is in the north, to Beersheba, that is in the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. A modern lookout tower has been erected there to get a bird's eye view of the whole area. From it you can see the storehouses, homes, and walls of the tell. A hand-dug cistern stored water for the city, and a four-horned pagan altar was found thrown into a storehouse there. A remnant of Israel's rebellion against Yahweh God by establishing high places to worship pagan deities. Mamshit, while not mentioned in the Bible, was also a highlight in our trip through the Nijav Desert. It was originally a pagan town but was later converted to Christianity. It bears Byzantine influences. A church can be found there. Crosses carved in rock. A cross-shaped baptistry. Bathtubs. Biblical inscriptions in the mosaic floors, horse stalls complete with watering troughs, cooking tools, and an interesting water cove used for offering hospitality to weary travelers. In a dry and thirsty desert, it adds new meaning to Jesus' command. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward, Matthew 10.42. To offer water was no trivial act, but one of the greatest things you could do for a weary traveler, because after all, without water, one would die. We ended the day with a refreshing swim in the pool at our kibbutz. On Saturday, the Sabbath, or in Hebrew, the Shabbat, we left our kibbutz and began our journey north to Galilee. On the way, we stopped by an Essene farm just down the road from Qumran, on the edge of the Dead Sea, where natural springs feed pools of water full of fish, and various signs have been erected to show the recession of the Dead Sea's banks. Due to drought, you can see that the Dead Sea has receded drastically over the years. From there we headed north through a heavily militarized and protected area that runs along the Jordan River. With Jordan just across the narrow river, that is the country of Jordan, military checkpoints and barbed wire can be frequently seen, and travelers with Israeli license plates are not permitted to stop in Palestinian towns to have anybody work on one's car for fear of sabotage. Just south 
of the Sea of Galilee, we stopped by Betchion, a huge archaeological site. In the lower area is a Byzantine-era town with bathhouses, temples, and a massive theater, all of which at one point were buried underground for centuries. Greek inscriptions are found in the stones, and broken pottery dating back thousands of years is as plentiful as gravel on the ground. Evidence of Christianity is on the very floor in the mosaics that were developed by the Christians of the Byzantine era. Upper Betchion is also a tell, composed of layer upon layer of civilization due to its strategic geography. It was repeatedly attacked and rebuilt and is one of the highest tells that we visited in all of Israel. Even Egypt had an outpost there at one point. In Judges chapter 1, the Jewish tribe of Manasseh could not drive out the original inhabitants of Betchion, and later Prince Jonathan and Saul's bodies were nailed to Betchion's walls after they were killed in battle. It was here that I found what looked like human finger bones and some crumbling cement-like substance. Could they have been from some ancient warrior killed defending its walls? Nearby, we also traveled up a very steep mountain to visit a Byzantine-era fort occupied by the Christian Crusaders. Here they defended their calling to help the sick and the lame. From its heights, we could see for miles around us. The traditional Christian baptismal site, Jordanet, was our next stop. Here the narrow Jordan hosts Christian pilgrims desiring to experience a baptism in the Holy Land and in one of its holiest rivers, the Jordan. And tourists also come to feed the fish and muskrats in the relatively clear water. Later we found a less touristy site and were able to swim in the Jordan River with a former Israeli soldier and his son. There we had an interesting conversation about God and politics with a man who is a Jewish atheist. It reminded us of the spiritual darkness that still exists in Israel and the many who need to encounter the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. At Ginnisor, located on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, we entered a museum to see a wooden boat that was found buried in the mud along the Sea of Galilee during a drought in the 1980s. This boat, dated to the time of Christ and dubbed the Jesus Boat, would have been similar to the one used by Christ and his disciples during their time on the waters of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee can be traveled around in a relatively brief period of time due to its mere 53 kilometers of shoreline. It is also rich with numerous biblical sites. These include the Mount of Beatitudes, a natural bowl-shaped hillside where Jesus preached to thousands of people. 
A church is there today, and the grass has been burnt off by summer grass fires. Second, Capernaum is the town just down the hill where Peter lived in. And Jesus also ministered there on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. A church is built over that site today, and one can look through the glass floor of the church down into the supposed home where Jesus visited Peter. Nearby is the biblical town of Chorazim, which was one of the towns cursed by Jesus Christ for their disbelief. It has been rebuilt and occupied on and off right up till the 1940s. The synagogue there contains a stone seat where the priest would have sat. An olive press lays outside made of stone. The next day we traveled north of Galilee through the Golan Heights. This region was originally part of Israel, but was not recaptured until June 1967 during the Six-Day War. In this region towers Mount Bental, where one can see for miles, and also tour through trenches used by Israeli soldiers. North of Mount Bental, we toured Nimrod's fortress, named after the Old Testament warrior, but built and rebuilt many centuries after him, by Muslims and Crusaders alike. Crusader symbols and Arabic writing can still be seen in the rock. As well as an algae covered cistern for collecting water. Down the hill from Nimrod's fortress is Caesarea Philippi, also known as the Banyas. Here a cave, originally filled with water, was used for throwing human sacrifices to their death by pagan pan-worshippers. It was known as the Abyss, or the Gates of Hades. It was here in Matthew 16 that Peter professed faith in Christ, and Jesus responded, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, that is Hades, will not prevail against it. What a powerful object lesson this must have been for Jesus' disciples. Nearby, cool streams reminded us of the spiritual water Jesus offers to all who come to him and profess faith in him as Peter once did. Nearby Caesarea Philippi, we toured Tel Dan, but all we have to show for it is this beautiful river since the camera battery died. At Dan, close to the Lebanon border, lie acres upon acres of ruins, overgrown with large trees, very different from the southern part of the country. Here Israel also captured an ancient Canaanite town. The following day we drove to Nazareth, a largely Muslim town in Israel. The impact of Islam was obvious, and yet nearby reminders of Jesus' life are still there, including a church that supposedly is on the site where Mary was born, along with various other churches and an ancient synagogue church where early Jewish Christians met. 
many built over even older churches. The next stop of the day was at Tel Megiddo, site of over 30 layers of civilization and the place where the Battle of Armageddon, or Armageddon, will take place in the future. This strategic city is on the main route from the Plains country to all the countries in the north, and therefore historically was the place of many epic battles. Located just on the top edge of a sprawling plain, one could easily envision millions of soldiers standing there in the future at the Battle of Armageddon. Megiddo bears witness to its many past battles and yet is strangely silent, almost as though it is waiting for the final day when that great cataclysmic battle will take place. It was here that we saw our first team of archaeologists and archaeological students hard at work. And like other cities of its era, Megiddo boasted an impressive water system deep beneath its surface. Bet Sharim was our next stop. Staged in a park-like setting, this national park was home to the governing Sanhedrin after the destruction of the temple by the Romans in Jerusalem in 70 AD. In the 2nd through the 4th century AD, it became a necropolis, or city of the dead. Here carved in the rock are numerous tombs and large white coffins, many of which contain the remains of well-known rabbis. Perhaps Jesus' borrowed tomb looked like one of these. By midday, we had traveled across the width of the country to the Mediterranean, where we swam in the sea near an ancient aqueduct used to convey water across the land. Down the road, we toured the ancient seaside city of Caesarea, 
where the Romans had constructed a theater and a vast athletic field for chariot games. A later Muslim mosque stands at the site, showing the religious diversity that has long been part of this land. That evening we returned to Galilee to stay in a bed and breakfast where we spent four days. It was owned by a Messianic Jewish lady overlooking the city of Tiberias on the western edge of Galilee. She suggested to us that we visit a yet to be opened site of interest across the Sea of Galilee which contained synagogues with Christian influences. While this makes Jewish archaeologists uncomfortable, the synagogues there, which bear markings of Christianity, appear to be evidence that early Christians were indeed Jewish and maintain much of their Jewishness as followers of Christ. The place was known as Susita, and that became our destination the next morning after a dip in the Sea of Galilee. After walking up a narrow stone path to Susita, marked on either side by warnings that unexploded landmines were still in the area from the Six-Day War, we arrived at the top of a mountain overlooking Galilee. Susita is a town, and yet from the ground you would never know that it existed unless you made the trip up the hill or saw it from the air if you were in an airplane, for instance. Could this be a place where some of the earliest Christians sang songs of praise to God, and sermons were preached. Down the hill, we visited a beautifully landscaped ancient church at a place called Curtsy. This is the likely place where Jesus came and cast the demons out of the possessed man and sent those demons into pigs who in turn rushed down the hill and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. The Byzantine church there was abandoned and buried until a road crew discovered it. It was also here that we met the first friendly cat that we'd seen in the whole country. Nearby, we also toured Gamla, famous for its nesting vultures and the site of another major battle fought by Jews against Romans. Hundreds of arrow and spearheads have been found on the hillsides of Gamla, testifying to the massive battles that took place there in the past between the Romans and the Jews. On our way back to Galilee, we also toured a church that marks the spot where Jesus performed numerous miracles, including turning two fish and five loaves into a meal for thousands of people. The simple church speaks to the simplicity of Jesus' ministry, and yet a simplicity that had profound effects on so many people. North of this site is the famous Tel Hazor. At Hazor, a cistern dug 46 meters into the stone provided water to the city that was attacked by Joshua during the conquest of the land of Canaan. 
Joshua burnt it to the ground. Evidence of this fire has been discovered, dated by secular archaeologists to around 1200 BC, bearing witness to biblical accuracy. As a Jewish town, it was later fortified, but fell to the Assyrians in 732 BC, and its Jewish inhabitants were deported, never again to return. On our final day, that is the Wednesday, Susie and I returned to Jerusalem to tour the Holocaust Museum and to revisit a few sites in and around Mount Zion, just outside of the old city walls. During our tour of the Holocaust Museum, we were reminded of God's promise to build a nation from the line of Abraham in spite of war, family, and the infertility issues that Abraham and his son and his grandson experienced early on. Through the millennia, the Jews have often rejected God and questioned his love for them. They have broken covenant with God, and yet God has endured in safeguarding them against total destruction. Today we have benefited from their lives by enjoying the salvation that Yahweh God brought to us through the line of David and the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we were reminded that we have had our lives impacted profoundly. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right, so class is dismissed and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week.